being here this morning. It's a wonderful joy to have each one of you here and to, um, to just worship and fellowship with you around God's Word. We're in a series, or I am in a series, uh, called What Christians Pursue. And I've been endeavoring to sort of uh, study the different habits and the different attitudes and the different behaviors that characterize and define Christians. We have seen how Christians pursue Christ-likeness, how they abide in the vine, how they pursue holiness of heart, how they um, pursue holy, uh, humility that serves. And then the last few weeks we considered um, how Christians pursue renewal of mind, and we spent a couple of sessions in that. And all these are themes that pertain to the individual and the individual's relationship with God. Yes, there is an aspect that from the vertical relationship, we have an outworking in the horizontal. Our relationship with God ought to flow out into our relationships with other believers. If we are right with God and if we are walking with Him and if we are obeying Him and living according to His commands then we should be walking rightly with his people as well. If we are in harmony with the Father, we should be in harmony with the Father's children. But when we look at Christendom today, or all of professing evangelicalism, we find a fractured spiritual landscape. Denominations are a dime a dozen, The differences are embarrassing. Scores of initiatives have been launched to sort of overcome this disparity and this factionalism. But more often than not, they often end up doing more harm than good. Because instead of settling on the highest value and providing the highest uh, truth that God has to offer, they often end up compromising and adopting the position that's the least inconvenient. Many are quite happy with that, actually. Because it doesn't matter so much that the truth has been compromised, but hey, we're all together. That's fantastic. And you know, there's strength in numbers. So they don't see it as a compromise. They actually see it as a victory, because where there is oneness, there is peace. Where there is peace, there is well-being, there is strength, and you know, it's wonderful, and everyone's singing Kumbaya around the, the campfire, and it just warms the cockles of your heart. And that is the unity that many Christians actually strive for. And surprisingly enough, they achieve it. Let me read to you a few excerpts from the Wikipedia entry pertaining to the Uniting Church in Australia. They're not my words. This is the almighty Wikipedia. I quote, The Uniting Church in Australia, the UCA, was established on 22nd June 1977 when most congregations of the Methodist Church of Australasia, the Presbyterian Church of Australia, and the Congregational Union of Australia came together under the basis of union. According to the Australian census in 2011, there are 1,065,796 people identifying with the Uniting Church in Australia, making it the third largest denomination behind the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. 
Uniting Care as a whole is the largest operator of general social care activities in Australia, including being the largest operator of aged care facilities. Other activities include central missions, shelters and emergency housing for men, women and children, family relationship support, disability services, food kitchens for underprivileged people. It's marvelous what unity can achieve. But let me complete the quote. The Uniting Church in Australia is widely considered and often described as being a progressive liberal church ordaining gay people and women and supporting progressive causes. Unquote. When professing Christians unite, it's funny how they stop being Christian. They become more attuned uh, to uh, progressiveness and liberalism and more political and more in touch with things like feminism and more attuned to social justice. And, but very rarely is it, is it, is it reported that when, that when such unity occurs that the people actually become more like Christ. I have not heard of I don't know if you have, but I have not. The unity that men bring about seems to result in less and less Christ-likeness. That to me is really curious. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm all for unity. Jesus was for unity. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men know, will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus wants his disciples to be united. No doubt. But what's the model? Is it the model of the Uniting Church in Australia where you all uh, denominations get together and form a really large million plus stronghold or is there another model? Please turn with me to your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4 and we'll see if we can find an answer. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. Hopefully God's word has the answer to the unity for God's people. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 to 6. Please give your prayerful attention to the reading of God's word. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. What do Christians pursue? Well, as per this passage, they pursue unity of the Spirit. And just to clarify, I'm not here to demonize and, and, you know, bag on the Uniting Church of Australia. I'm not, I'm not here to do that. But I am here to clarify that if we abandon the principles of unity as God has set out in His Word, then we do so at our own peril. So what are these principles? And I'd like to discuss them under three headings. The means to unity, 
the motivation for unity and the method for unity. The means we look at in verse 1, the motivation and the method for unity. Now I must confess that we're only going to do the first one today. Um, I was really disappointed that I couldn't share the whole thing, but um, if I was to cram the whole thing into one sermon, then I believe I would be doing the, the text and injustice and I would be doing you a disservice. So God willing, next time we will look at the motivation and the method of unity. But today we want to consider the means. What is the source? Where does this unity come from? Because if we can pinpoint the source, then hopefully we have a better understanding of what this unity is and how it is to be lived out in our lives. So number one, the means to, un- to unity. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, Implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Therefore, whenever you see that word, if if you've done math, I'm sure you have in in school, uh, the therefore was uh, a sort of signal that a lot of logic has gone before in order to come to a conclusion. That this is not a whimsical sort of conclusion, it is derived, it is logical, it is rational, it makes sense. Therefore, someone has put forward an argument that hopefully makes sense and says, because of this argument, therefore, I believe this. And I love what Paul does, and he's, he's bringing out a rational proposition, he always does this, therefore... And to me that signals that this is a a man who is a thinking man. He is not someone who is talking about fuzzy logic. He's not a a person who is making a sentimental exhortation. He's not got the music loud and, and soft music and dimming the lights and saying Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's making a very sound proposition. And what we see here is... Uh, the, the first three chapters have, have been spent on building up that proposition. And therefore he says, therefore. So the point here is that the means for unity is that proposition, that objective truth of God. On the basis of which we can say, therefore, I implore you. If you um, turn back to 3.14 for a moment, we see, I mean, the whole, the whole chapter from the beginning, Paul is, is elaborating on this objective truth concerning the nature of God and the nature of sinners and his work of redemption and his plan for them and how he wants them to bless them and why he wants to bless them because he has chosen them from the beginning of, of the world and a whole heap of fantastic, rich theological truth. And on the basis of that, he says, therefore. So in 3.14, I just want to read how he sums up all these wonderful and uplifting themes. Read with me. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven... Now for this reason, obviously he's given the reason, so he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He's talking about the Creator, obviously. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Therefore, I implore you as a prisoner of God. There's a lot of truth that's gone before. The grounds for making this, this, this plea and this, this imploring are, are justified. It's not, a, it's not an emotional plea. It's not a superficial, sentimental, sort of whimsical plea. Paul starts off with how God has moved to bring these Gentiles into his kingdom. One, one five says, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Deep and rich truths about God and his plan for salvation are explained. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in transgressions made us alive. It's only once this solid foundation has been laid that Paul says on the basis of these timeless truths having understood these marvelous realities start living. And that's always his pattern of, of, of preaching. And it's, it's the same with the other New Testament writers as well. They bring out a whole lot of rich truth about God and his character and his plan. And then say, therefore, so live accordingly. The beliefs come before the behaviors. The doctrine comes before the duty. Because it's not enough to know what to do. We need to know why God is asking us to do this. I know we just had the first word, but I need to point out something here that really bothers me about modern day evangelicalism. And that's the phrase and the people who say, doctrine divides, but love unites. Have you heard that? It just annoys me no end. Doctrine divides, but love unites. It's all about Jesus. Yeah, keep, yeah, keep the doctrine aside. Yeah, let's talk about Jesus. All about love. But here's the problem. When you get to the practice without first understanding the principle, then you are falling prey to the biggest misconception that exists in our culture. And that is that Christianity is all about being a good person. Why is that a problem? Because without the doctrines to ground you, as to what is a good person, you will make up your own definition of what a good person is. That definition of good will either come from your own intellect, or it will come from culture, or it will come from politics. And that's the problem with many who attend the churches today. They think that God is calling them to be a good person. There's this move that is trying to define Christianity in, in very ethical terms. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you, you know, um, do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, 
you know these are these are ethics that even our society for a lot, for the most part would uphold culture and politicians would say yeah these are good ethical behaviors to have but then there are plenty of ethics that culture talks about which are completely out of line with scripture same sex marriage abortion rights euthanasia to name a few so what happens then is that scripture is twisted to somehow align with the thinking of culture not the other way around and so you get generation upon generation of cultural christians who are tossed about with every new wind of doctrine because they didn't want to pay attention to the doctrine i mean take a look at i don't know how many of you are on facebook or twitter but if you look at the posts of many of them you see they're so heavily into human rights advocacy and social justice and environmental causes and all of this my question is what's the motivation what's the motivation of a social justice warrior or an environmental warrior or a human rights advocate is their motivation the glory of god is their motivation the inerrancy of scripture is their motivation to to honor christ i don't see that i don't see that at all what i do see is a commitment to a humanist ideology that seeks to replace the true god from his rightful role as the ruler of the universe and lord of our lives you know you want me to follow a human rights twitter page i'll follow anyone who campaigns uh, to save the the lives of those aborted they're human too you want me to follow a facebook social justice page sure does your social justice also cater to the justice needs of those who have been ostracized because they stood out against same sex marriage terms like human rights and social justice are sound very noble and and dignified but they are anything but and the problem is we get sucked into these trends and these fads because some evangelical that we respect suddenly starts talking about it or some celebrity starts talking about it and soon we are miles away from scripture how does it happen because we refuse to learn the doctrine there is no substitute for biblical truth because biblical truth is god's truth and that's why being a faithful shepherd paul takes his sheep through the principles of god's objective truth first the blessings of redemption the reality of being made alive in christ paul's own responsibility as a steward and then he concludes his teaching by telling them what he is praying for it's a fantastic prayer he's praying that they receive strength in the inner man through the power of the spirit the indwelling of christ being established in love comprehension with all the saints of the enormity and extent of god's love that transcends knowledge filling up with the fullness of god do you see if you just go straight to the practice do you see the the richness of the principles that you are missing
Therefore, because of the rich reality that undergirds your new creation and your future destiny, therefore, because of all of this, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. The prisoner. He is in prison because of his identity. He is in chains because he no longer lives like a Pharisee of Pharisees. His ethic is not informed by what the culture or the politicians consider to be valuable. He, his ethic is informed by what Christ considers to be valuable. He's basically saying, don't listen to me because I'm popular. Listen to me because I'm faithful. My appeal to you is not on the basis of worldly success, but on the basis of godly faithfulness. Listen to me because my present circumstances have been ordained not by the word, but by the God of this world. Listen to me because I am proof of integrity. If I can hold fast to my message despite the situation and circumstances that I am in, if I can keep faithful despite being in prison and being in chains, if I can still experience joy and peace and fullness of God despite what's around me, then that's surely worth listening to, right? I mean, if this message was his own invention, if he had come up with this with his own brilliance and intellect, he was a smart guy. But if all of this was his own thinking, then would he still hold to it when he was in in, in a crunch? If you've invented something and you're in jail for it, are you still going to hold to it? No, he's holding fast to it because it comes from the very highest authority. And it's on the basis of that authority that he makes his exhortation. S. Lewis Johnson explains it like this, and I quote, In the Greek text, it is not off, but in. So he speaks of himself as the prisoner in the Lord. In other words, it is his relationship of vital communion to the Lord Jesus Christ that lends authority to what he is saying. He is a prisoner, all right, but he is a prisoner in the Lord. So what he says is to be regarded as coming from someone who is in vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Unquote. That was the reason for his Ephesian audience to listen to Paul 2,000 years ago and that's the reason for us to listen to him today. Because the one who was in authority back then is the one who is in authority today. Paul isn't asking for a favor. He, he's not saying, you know, do this if it's convenient, if you, know, if you have the time. He's not saying, do this if you agree with me. He's not saying, do this because it might be good. He's saying, do this for heaven's sake because you have a new identity. Do this because you are a new person. Do this because you have a new allegiance and new affections. Do this because you are under new management. Do this because you have... Because you are responding to a supernatural reality that has been made known to you through your salvation. So by using the, the term therefore, he shifts from doctrine to duty. He now lays down the practical instructions based on the principles already discussed. So what are the practical instructions? Walk. How? In a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, walk, we've, we've uh, been through this term a few times and we understand it's not about taking a walk, it's about conduct. It's about how you live, not just how you live, but also how you think. 
And so the way in which we live and think ought to be in a manner worthy of the calling. Now that term worthy is a really interesting one. It, uh, it, it, uh, it refers to having the weight of another thing so that uh, it has the same value and worth. So the word literally means bringing up the beam of the scales. So the essential meaning of the word has to do with balancing. Balancing weight. And so Paul is basically saying, let the weight of your conduct balance with the weight of your calling. That's what it means to walk worthy. Let the weight of your conduct and your thinking and your doing balance the weight of your calling. So you want to know the practical stuff? Paul is saying, great. Let it have the same weight. That's the source of unity. When everyone's conduct has the same weight as the calling. Which begs the question, what is the calling? You know, are you called differently to I am called? And do different people have different calling? What is the weight of this calling so that we may know how to weigh our conduct against it? The King James translates the calling as vocation. I don't know how many of you have a King James, but you may have vocation. But actually, this is the word that is used for an invitation to a banquet. Calling means invitation. Which means that a response is required. It's, it's, a response is required because it's an invitation to something very significant. Are you going to show up or are you going to RSVP saying, sorry, I can't come? Now, you may say, um, what's the invitation for? I mean, how can I say whether I want to come or not if I don't know what the invite's for? Fair question. Let me give you a few ideas as to what this calling, what this invitation is for. First Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Second Thessalonians 2.14 It was for this he called you through our gospel. Why? That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 1 Peter 3.9 For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 5.10 The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Revelation 19.9 Blessed are those who are invited, called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Scripture is clear, very clear about what the invitation is for. It is to partake in the very nature of God which is holiness. It is to gain the glory of the Messiah. It is to experience freedom and blessing and eternal life. It is to have a seat at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is what you are being invited to. And if there is unity of the invitation, then surely that's a source of how we all can be united because all of us 
have the same calling. Now, you may say, oh, no, that doesn't really float my boat. Uh, Thanks, but no thanks. And that's fine. You can take your place in the outer darkness. But there's nothing but torment and condemnation and the wrath of God. There's nothing good out there. There's no fun to be had there. There are no parties there. There's no mirth and merriment there. The only sound that you can hear outside in that outer darkness is the sound of regret. Hell is what true regret sounds like. If that's your bag, then you can go for your life. Sure. Plenty of free parking. But those are the only two choices that exist. You're either with God and you're in, or you're not with God and you're out. But for those of us who have been called, those of us who have received the calling, and those of us who have responded, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He has called us out of the world to set us apart from the world. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. 1 John 3 1. That's the invitation. That's the calling to which you have been called. The word you is not singular. One person. Paul is not writing to one person. It's the word you all. That's the calling with which you all have been called. I'm tempted to suggest that if there's ever an Australian standard version, this phrase should be translated as with which yous have been called. Everyone get it? Well, why is that significant? It's significant because the objective truth of God implies that no one can say, that may be your calling, but that's not mine. There is no way anyone can say that. Galatians 1, 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Why? So that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of the Father. The will of the Father is that we be rescued from evil, not that we remain in it. It's, it's really clear. I mean, you don't need to be a Greek scholar to read that, to understand that. The will of the Father is that you be rescued from evil. Oh, but does that mean that it's God only wants to rescue a few, maybe? Not everyone. Acts 17.30 God is now declaring to who? To men. Which men? That all people, everywhere, should repent. The calling of God is not for a few people. The calling of God is not for a specific culture. It is for all men, everywhere. It's a universal declaration, repent. It's not a, it's not a nice word. We don't like hearing that word. Because it means you're wrong. But that's what God's word says. Change your mind, amend your ways, turn your conduct around. And God is calling Everyone and declaring to every people everywhere. Second Peter three nine The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, 
but for all to come to repentance. It's a uniform invitation across the board. That's what unites us. Each one of us has the same call by the same God to the same purpose, to the same party. That is the calling with which you have been called, with which I have been called, and so the in, that is the invitation with which each one of us has been invited. So if that is the invitation, if that is the weight of the invitation for everyone, then how should the weight of our conduct be which corresponds to that invitation? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Weigh up your conduct with the weight of the invitation to which you have been called. Uh, some people like to say, you know, I think, um, I think um, you know, God has different standards of holiness for different people. You know, He doesn't call everyone to the same level. You know, some people are more holy. Some, it's not, I'm, 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 I struggle with that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, but some people can be holier. Some people, it's, it's just easier for some more people. No. God says, be holy as I am holy. There's no different standards for different people. He is the standard. He's, the invitation is to be like Him. To have the same standards of holiness that He has. By the way, this is not an invitation for a particular stage in your life. It's an invitation to the rest of your life. First question, have you accepted the invitation? Have you picked up the phone? Have you sent a response back saying, yep, I'm in? And if you have, then the second question is, is your walk, is your conduct, is your thinking balanced to the weight of the call? To be a Christian is to profess that God has called you. You know, we sometimes forget this because when we look at Christians, we see that's a person who says, I have decided to follow Jesus. And that's right. There is a personal element as well. But we, may always, we must always ask, why have you decided this? Why all of a sudden did you decide to follow Jesus? The true Christian is someone who will say, I have made the decision because God has called me. I have made my decision because I heard him call. And when God calls, the, the supreme uh, creator of the universe, the king calls you, you come, right? I'm heeding the call of God, which means that there is an admission that He was the one who called. We weren't pursuing Him. He pursued us. He picked up the phone. He said, knock, knock, knock. How about this? We did not initiate the call. He did. So our decision is merely a response. I have decided to follow Jesus, not primarily because I think it's a good idea, not primarily because I reckon it's a good thing to do, not because of anything in me, but I have decided to follow Jesus because God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved me, even when I was dead in my transgressions, He made me alive together with Christ. That is why I follow Jesus. That's the objective truth. That's the main reason. That I like to explain it like this. 
I was dead, like Lazarus. I was in the grave, I was stinking, and I did not know how much I stank. And then one day I heard a voice saying, come forth. And that's when I realized, uh, oh, I'm actually in a, not a good place. And because I'm alive now, I suddenly realized I must have been dead because, hey, I'm stinking and, oh, look at all these grave cloths on me. What's going on? I thought I was alive. I'm alive now, but surely, because of where, where I am, I must have been dead. People have put me here. And then I heard that voice come forth. How can I not follow the voice of the one who has raised me from the dead. That's not just my story. That's the story of everyone who has been called. People may explain it differently and they may have different expressions for it, but that's what happened. They were dead. And then suddenly they heard a voice. And they followed. Because they were alive. It was an invitation to come out from death. Don't stay in death. And that's why the, 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 the believer continues in life. Because he does not want to stay in. Yes, he falls. Yes, he stumbles. Yes, those things happen. But now he's moving on to life. It's to move from condemnation to blessing. It's, it's to move from alienation to adoption. That's what unites us. That's how God works. That's, that's His plan to create unity. To call out people. To be a, a peculiar people for Himself. All who have the same confession. I was blind, but now I see. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Why? Why? With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Why? To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be through the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 4-12 that, That's the means to the unity of the Spirit. 
That's how we get there. It's based on the objective truth of God's word. It's based on a fitting response to the call of God, which is an invitation to salvation and holiness and eternal life. And it is based on the uniformity of that call. We all, we all conduct ourselves in a manner that has the same weight as the calling to which we have been called. Who can refuse? Who can refuse such a fantastic invitation? Unity has to come. It's just, it just has to come. How can it not? But not when it's based on just the practice. It first has to be based on the principle. It has the unity, our unity, has to have its source in the will of the Father who chose and in the work of the Son and in the work of the Spirit who calls. Ecumenism does not work because it is based in the plan and the will of men. But biblical unity works because it is based in the plan and the will of God. There's another more beautiful picture, and we'll close with this. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. We see another picture of beautiful unity. John 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 13 to 21. John 17, verse 13 to 21. And this is Jesus speaking to his Heavenly Father. Verse 13. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Do you realize that this is Jesus praying for you? I do not ask just for these, these disciples who are out there sleeping in the garden. I don't just ask for them, I am asking also for those who will believe in me because of their word. That's you and me. That's amazing to me to understand that Jesus was praying for us. And what was he praying? Verse 21, that they may all be one. How? Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. There can be no evangelism without unity. And there can be no unity without the truth of God. 
Consequently, there can be no evangelism without the truth of God. That's the true picture of Christian unity. The picture of unity within the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, living in, in perfect harmony. And that's the unity that God wants us to reflect. That is the model. That is the standard. Not different denominations coming together and saying, oh yes, we'll sing Kumbaya around the campfire. No, no. That is the unity. This is the unity. Father, Spirit, Son, together. Let's allow that to sink in for a while. Jesus has prayed for those in New Community Church that New Community Church should be united. I find that amazing. And not just that New Community Church should be united amongst itself and forget. No, New Community Church is part of a larger body of Christ. The universal church. We united with them. When our brothers and sisters in, in the Middle East are persecuted, do we hurt? Because we're part of the same body. When the name of Christ is abused and vilified and, and misused, do we get angry? Because he is the head of our body. That's a huge responsibility to, to mirror the unity of the Trinity. And there's only one way that we can hope to stay true to that responsibility is if we stay true to the principles that he has left us with. May we be a people who are united. Not because we have common likes and dislikes and not because we have a common culture or because we have the same age group, because we have the same taste. No, that's, that's, that's all good reasons for unity, but may we be a people who are united primarily because of our calling. Because we recognize that God has called us and that we therefore have to live in a manner that is worthy. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, when we when we see your, the standards that you have set for us, Father, we have to confess that they are frightful. Father, because we are not coming to a human standard, but to a divine standard, which is far, far greater than we can ever hope to achieve by ourselves. That's why, Lord, you call us. You waken us up from our death. And you breathe life into us, not so that we can be by ourselves, but that, so that we can come into your family and live like your people. Father, we just pray that that truth would unite our hearts. Father, that we would be united on this truth. That we would cherish it and treasure it because it is the truth that brings us life. And that it is the truth that will bring anyone else life. For there is no name under heaven or earth by which we must be saved. And so Father, we just pray that you would help us to guard this. To guard this unity that you have given us. It is not something that we have engineered. 
But we pray that you would help us to guard and protect and preserve it for your glory and so that we may show the world who are looking in that we truly are the children of God and that this might be to the praise of your glory. We ask in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen.